Welcome to the Further Light Podcast, presented by Wisconsin Freemasonry, helping you accomplish your Masonic goals through education and more light. And now, I present to you, Brother Chris Lutke. Listeners, scholars, brothers, this is Brother Chris Lidke, and today I want to explore, well, some of the issues that I've come across. We're looking at Masonic content, Masonic research, and here's the problem. If you've been listening for a while, this is probably episode 44, assuming I don't put things out of order, which I am apt to do. And in the process of putting together this podcast, myself and the committee that I work with, does a lot of research, and we run into a variety of issues when doing that. One of the many issues, for example, is repetition, where you'll find something that someone wrote about maybe in 1995, and then you see it repeated in five, six, seven different areas. It's reworded, but it's the same thing. Or you find something that's very interesting, but it's very difficult to figure out where they got it from. It's very difficult to prove something. And when you're dealing with history, as I like to do, well, that's problematic. Even in esoteric teachings, you come across issues where you're trying to clarify, is this historical? Is this opinion? Where does interpretation cross the line into opinion? And these are issues that we come across in history and in academic subjects. So today what I want to do is look at these issues, these issues of Masonic research, and provide some possible answers, talk about best practices, see where the issues are and what we can do. And to give you fair warning, this is one of those episodes where I have a number of things open in front of me, but I don't have a solid script. So bear with me. I have an outline, hopefully I stay on task, and hopefully we get something out of it. So let's start with the problem, because the first thing you need to do when dealing with any kind of research is going to be to define the problem. And in this case, there are a few of them. As I talked about briefly before, repetition of information is a big one. We've dealt with that here. For example, we see information that gets spread without anyone really checking on it. Or if it is checked on, it's minimal. We're not seeing a lot of people coming out and saying, hey, by the way, this didn't happen in the Civil War, as we saw with the interview with Michael, most worshipful brother, Michael Halloran. We see issues like the forget-me-not, where there's a reason for it. It's a great metaphor and a great teaching, but the the history behind it, the historiography, is problematic. Historiography is the study of different histories that have been written about the same subject. It's sort of like historical wrestling. You put the historians in the ring and you see what what comes out when you have them fight, leaving that aside. So we have bad information that gets spread sometimes without checking. We also see information where it's unclear whether you're looking at something that is informational, educational, or opinion. 
And these could be different things. Sometimes we just want you to think about something. And so we're presenting information that isn't actually historical. It's an idea to kind of get the juices flowing. Very common in education. Sometimes it is historical, in which case the standards may well be quite different. For example, if I'm trying to talk about the importance of bringing past masters back into the lodge, my standard of resource, of reference, is going to be very different than if I'm trying to talk to you about masonry under the Reich. Then we have the issue of sources and citations. Oftentimes, we will see things written, for example, blogs and other materials, where there are no citations, there are no sources. And the problem here is that there's no way to confirm or validate. And this becomes a serious issue when you start getting into history, more so than opinion and interpretation. Interpretation is oftentimes trying to, at least for this podcast, is oftentimes trying to throw out new ideas. But sometimes we might need that citation. And in certain forms, you see citations lacking, and it's really common, and there are reasons for it. For example, in a podcast, you don't want to keep stopping and talking about who you used. You might do a broad overview. Here's some of the, some of the sources, but not others. But then again, it's a different mode of presentation. The goals are different. We have the issue of the internet and credibility. We don't know who wrote the blog. We don't know if this brother is very well known or, in some cases, whether he's a brother or not. And we have no best practices. No one really talks about these things. In fact, frequently in colleges today, the standards of research and the practice, the skills of research, are passed over for a wide variety of reasons. But we have no really good best practice. So... Let's look at some best practices. Let's look at how to do research, at least from my perspective. I'm coming at it as instructor in art history and history at the college level. I do research. I have graduate degrees in both fields, so clearly I make some poor life decisions at times. And so I want to apply that here. First of all, when you're trying to develop presentation or a paper, the first thing you need to figure out is what is the mode of presentation because it's very, very different. Are you going to present it in a written form or an oral form? In a written form, the language is going to be different. You can add more flourish to written form, whereas an oral form is very different. It's going to be a lecture. You need to keep their attention and the expectation, the reader or viewer's expectation is different in each setting. So in one case, you need to create an entire written manuscript. In other cases, you might need, for example, an oral presentation, simply notes. And in a written presentation, I might use footnotes and citations, uh, whereas in an oral presentation, I might have different ways of applying that. I'm not going to talk about the publisher and everything. I might have a bibliography that I put on the last slide or something along those lines. So it becomes an issue. Then we have the issue of how do you even get started? So, first of all, you need to deal with what is your topic? What do you want to look at? 
Is it esoteric? Is it historical? Is it something else? And if it's historical, then you're going to want to really define it. What is the problem? Who, what, when, where, why? The basics. So you start at that very simple level. It might be a paragraph defining for yourself what you're dealing with. If you're dealing with something that's more interpretive, etc., it's more or less the same thing. You want to make sure that you're defining where you're going with things. Then, as you really start studying what's out there, based on this very simple topic, you're going to start narrowing things down because there are huge topics out there. Let's take Solomon's Temple or the Morgan Affair. These are topics that entire books are written on. So you might need to narrow that down. You might look at one person in the Morgan Affair. You might look at one aspect of Solomon's Temple as an example. Then you're going to start presenting or putting together some kind of thesis or some kind of goal. What are you trying to do with that paper, with that presentation? In the process, you're going to start expanding on things. So you're going to need to define your terms. If there's anything that the average person on the street doesn't know, then you're going to have to define it. You're going to have to start crafting that thesis and that goal, and you're going to have to start evaluating for example, your sources, which I'm going to get into in a minute because that's a huge issue in of itself. You also want to look at anyone else who has written about that topic because you will find oftentimes that someone did write about it or maybe a few people did, but hey, they're missing this thing. Or maybe 20 years after they've written, when you're looking at it, things have changed. Understandings have changed. Society has changed. So don't be afraid to go back and reevaluate, re-examine something. Then we need to start looking at notes. How are you going to keep track of everything? Everyone has different ways of doing it. Some people take literal notes. Some people use note cards. Personally, I tend to take books. I like written forms in physical form when possible. And I highlight the living heck out of them. And then I use those little sticky tabs that look like uh, post-it notes. And I'll put notes on them. So, uh, discussion of X. And I will put a post-it note on the front of the book as well, or the front of the article, telling me what it's about. That way, I can go back later and organize those based on section, chapter, paragraph, whatever it is I'm working with, so that I can kind of keep everything together. But it works for me. It doesn't work for everyone. For other people, you might need some kind of documentation. There are whole computer programs out there that are designed for keeping track of your research and keeping things together. I should also note, when you get to this point, you probably want a running works cited page or bibliography. So anytime you pick something up and you're looking at it, throw it in there so that when you get to the end, you're not trying to guess. If you're footnoting, well, this is also a good practice because you don't want to just be able to say, hey, it came from Defoe writing on. You want to be able to say it came from Defoe page whatever. So it becomes something that you're working through. And this is the research phase. This should be the most fun, but also sometimes the most irritating because you get to the point that you're sure that you're done and then suddenly something else pops up. Someone just wrote about your topic or someone says, hey, did you look at this? And by the way, as Masons, 
Oftentimes that might take the form of, hey, someone got in touch with me again and said that I can get my hands on the minutes for this lodge or I can get my hands on this manuscript, whatever the case may be. So you're trying to put things together. You're researching them, you're organizing them, and the next step is typically an outline of some form. So that is just organizing your thoughts. Very simple form. And for some of us, that can lead from outline to sort of expansion over time, expanding each point of that outline until you get to book article form. The outline could be the script for your presentation. A lot of possibilities. Either way, you're going to be doing drafts. And you really need someone to look at it. Someone who isn't you, someone who may not have your biases. I hate to say it, but everyone has biases. And so you want that other person. They can revise it. You can rewrite it. You might rethink things. Maybe this idea that you went off on doesn't really work. In my master's thesis, my thesis advisor basically bled red ink all over that thesis probably seven or eight times reorganized the entire thing numerous times at times cutting out as much as 20 pages i'm sitting there going no that's you know this great important thing and it's 20 pages it took me some time but you have to accept that these are things that are going to happen from time to time so very very common and this is how you're working towards your final piece, whatever it is, a speech or whatnot. And if it's a written piece, read it out loud, print it, take it in your bathroom, stare at yourself in the mirror, read it out loud. It sounds ridiculous, but it is probably the easiest way of editing because the human ear will pick up grammatical errors way before the mind. And how many times have you read over something mentally, maybe three or four times, only to get it back later and discover that your mind kept changing that word to something else so you never actually picked up on it. Reading it orally, you're forced to say what's there. You will see the errors. It also prevents you from being too verbose or too pedantic because if you're saying too much, it'll be really obvious. You'll start to hear the repetition. So let's talk about sources. When we look at sources, there's a number of things we need to look at. First of all, one of the big arguments today that you tend to see is, do you want book or online? Well, either one can be problematic. Self-published books are no better than a blog. Just because it's in book form doesn't mean the author knows what they're talking about. It doesn't mean that that's a credible source. Likewise, if it's online, it's just a blog, it might be problematic. There are times that you really want to question things that might be on Grand Lodge websites, that might be on Lodge Research websites. Always look at the sources, look at credibility. Is this something that's going to be useful? Now today, I like online sources for articles and sometimes books if I can find them, usually as PDF. Why? Because I can search it. I can use a keyword search and pop right to the part that I want. And that makes my life easier. And then I can print it if I so choose, which is also fantastic because I prefer reading in a printed form, but I prefer researching in an online digital form. When it comes to sources, you also have to consider primary versus secondary. Primary sources being someone writing at the time, experiencing whatever it is. Secondary being people talking about 
those people. So primary sources are always considered to be stronger sources. If I could find, you know, journals by Masons who were in the POW camps, well, those would be fantastic sources to get my hands on. Those are sort of the holy grail. Secondary sources are good, and where they can be useful is they will point out what the primary sources are so that you can go find them. This is part of why citation is so important. Now, there are other things that we need to take into account. Biases. Again, everyone, every author, no matter how good they are, has biases. So you have to keep that in mind. Credibility, as we've touched on. Who is this person? Do they have the credibility to talk on this subject? And by the way, there are times where someone with a plain blog might be giving you an idea that's fantastic and it's something to pursue, in which case you might actually cite that blog. But keep in mind how you're using it. And age. How old is the source? Are you looking at something from 1900? Well, that might be fantastic if you're looking at primary source material for, say, the Civil War period. But it's not terribly useful if you're talking about modern understandings of the seven liberal arts. It's just too old. So always keep that in mind. What is the age of the source? When was it printed? When did it first come out? And again, we see lots of repetition in old sources. Cloudy, Mackey, etc. turn up over and over again. Sometimes people presenting those as their own original work. Now, when it comes to standards for writing, there are actually standards out there. I'm going to borrow from Quattro Coronati uh, Research Lodge in England. Fantastic uh, resource. But I'm going to read from their standards if you are presenting a paper to them. They accept two forms of research paper, either long form, 6,000 to 10,000 words, or short form, 1,000 to 4,000 words. Now, those are two very different ideas, two different forms. Long form is, you know, your 20 page, you're really digging into it. Short form is typically more like what we do on the podcast. Uh, most of our podcasts are in the one to 2,000 word range. They say papers submitted for publication should be factual and substantiated. In other words, cited. And everything should be really looked into, really examined. When we interviewed Most Worshipful Brother Michael Halloran, he said it took him two and a half years of research to write his book. So that should give you some idea. Now, Quattro Coronati will send your work for blind peer review, which means it's going to go to someone, they're going to read it over, review it, but you will never know who they are. Hence the blind part, and they don't know who you are. All your name, your name is removed and everything else. Then you have to modify and resubmit, and it goes through the process. They talk about the paper being original, having not been published elsewhere. Authors uh, may wish to contact the editor to determine whether a proposed subject is suitable for inclusion. In other words, if you're, talk, if you're writing something for a lodge of research, Quattro Coronati uh, specific place, you want it to go through the editing process, which means you probably want to talk to the editor first and say, hey, is this a topic that works? Or is this the 17th time that you've talked about this subject or someone has? Now, they look for articles to be submitted electronically. Almost everyone does, typically in Microsoft Word format or in PDF. So 
we see that there are these standards out there for different research lodges. And I would recommend that any research lodge, anyone who's trying to collect material on masonry, develop their own guidelines for what they will find acceptable. Now, in terms of resources, I have two different kinds of resources, Masonic and non-Masonic. In terms of non-Masonic, just sort of doing research, there are a couple of books. Uh, Jacques Barzon and Henry Groff write The Modern Researcher, going into sort of how to research step-by-step, how to deal with things, how to look at internet sites, etc. Then we have two other sources. And these are just ones that have worked for me. Uh, One is called The iSearch Paper by McRory, uh, basically looking at how to research, how to write best practices. And an interesting one, if you're into history, Barbara Tuckman writes Practicing History, a great book, sort of how to deal with history, dealing with narratives and such. And then uh, one of my favorite authors, Richard Evans, who I dealt with a lot with Masonry Under the Reich, also writes In Defense of History, kind of looking at, again, some of these ideas of how to write history to make it interesting, to draw people in, which we need because there's a lot of dry history out there. We've all seen it. So what about Masonic sources? Where could you look? And this is not an exhaustive list by any means. This is more examples more than anything else. So the Quattro Coronati uh, Lodge of Research has a great resource page. They have a lot of materials on there that go into, for example, Uh, different websites that they recommend. And that is incredibly useful because they are a credible source. And so if they're giving you a source, you can assume that's a good starting point. The Short Talk Bulletins, they have their own website and it's a great place to start. You get a lot of credible sources there. So you see very well-known authors writing on topics. So it, it would be a good starting point to familiarize yourself with what's going on. Uh, There's a website, Freemasons Freemasonry, which seems to do a lot of reviewed work. They put out some good information. Uh, It's Pietri Stone, I think is the name of it. But if you put in uh, freemasons-freemasonry.com, you should get there. Various Grand Lodges and Research Lodges have websites that oftentimes have good information. For example, one of the best that I've seen is freemasonry.bcy.ca, which is the Grand Lodge of British Columbia and the Yukon. And they have some outstanding research freely available just out there. So great stuff. And there's a lot of other sources out there. There are articles, there's archives, there's all sorts of materials. So if you're looking for something, There's definitely a lot. That being said, you will find that finding sort of modern ideas, new ideas of how to examine things might only have three or four articles that you're looking at, and that's fine. And if you get stuck in your research, do what the rest of us do. Go citation mining. Look through some of the materials on that topic. Try and determine what are the major papers or or the big articles or books on that topic. 
and then just look at their references. Go find them, the major references that they're using, and you kind of follow down that rabbit hole. Of course, you want to find a more modern examination of your topic because otherwise you're starting in 1975 and going backwards, not necessarily coming forwards. So why are we going over this? Well, at the end of the day, I'd like to see stronger Masonic research. I'd like to see some great material come out that would stand up at any historical conference, that would stand up in any academic setting. Why? Because it lends credibility. It would encourage other researchers to look at us, secular, so-called secular researchers or profane researchers, researchers outside the fraternity, to start looking at us. One of the big complaints from historians looking at masonry is that it's really hard to do. Unless you're working from primary source material, there isn't a lot to work with. You run into credibility issues. You run into uh, opinion versus interpretation versus fact And it's very troublesome, very problematic to work with. So my hope is that even if you take one or two things from this episode, that it helps you improve your Masonic research. And it helps you, even if you never create a presentation or written piece, it helps you look at Masonry, research it for your own growth, and understand what makes good sources versus what makes questionable sources and how best to improve yourself in masonry. After all, that is the goal, that we help you with Masonic education. We help you become a better man. Thank you for joining me, Brother Chris Lidke, and the entire Further Light team on your quest to find more light through masonry. Are you interested in learning more about Freemasonry in Wisconsin? Visit wisconsinmasons.org to learn more about masonry and access further educational content and more light. Once again, that address is wimasons.org. Any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email us at education at wisconsinmasons.org. And thank you for listening.